This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our bi-weekly podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. I'm really excited to talk to Dave Dubois, who is the New Mexico State Climatologist. He's also the director of the New Mexico Climate Center, among other things. Dave, did I press the right buttons and get you on with us? Sounds good. I'm here. You are there. Awesome. And Dave, do you want to add anything to your to your resume? I help with the COCORAZ. Uh, COCORAZ um, is a citizen science program, so I'm very happy to help help with that program too. Yes, I definitely would like to talk about that and how folks awesome. might get involved in that. I've, I've been really excited to talk to you. You and I talked a couple years ago when I was working on an article about changing forests in New Mexico. After we finished that conversation, I, I had a lot of leftover questions for myself that now, you know, a year and a half later, I'm going to finally get to ask you. So why should we in New Mexico be worried about climate change? Well, it's, it's something that is already here. Uh, we've seen the climate change, and mainly it's coming in the form of warming temperatures. In looking at the average annual temperatures, we can track that over time. And we have observations here in New Mexico that go back up more than 124 years. And we are able to, to track different um, natural cycles as well as the human footprint um, that we've been mainly seeing in the last, since like, like 1970, we've really seen that really jump up. Um, and then as a result of the warming temperatures, we've seen other things, other indicators, um, like um, the snowpack. Um, we've seen that as a big um, change over time. And, um, and then we've, and a lot of these are, are jiving with what our projections are, are showing in the modeling community. But um, even if you don't buy into that, um, just looking at all of the changes we've seen with um, looking at how it affects health, it pretty much affects most every sector of our, our economy and living uh, in New Mexico, not just here, but all across the world. So one of the fundamental questions I think that we constantly run into talking with climate change is, is this. What's the difference between climate and weather? That's a great question, and I... I I try to get this um, that same question when I and even when I invite my uh, elementary school kids for a tour. Um, we that's one of the first things we talk about is what's the difference between climate and weather. And I like to give them sort of um, um, analogies. So if you think of you know if the kids I say who who watches baseball or who watches sports, and then I get a sense of uh, if the majority of kids like that, then we talk about. Um, individual games is sort of like what is an analogy of weather. You know, you may have a good game, bad game, but your your overall stats. You know, how many times have you um, your RBI or your your um, your lifetime uh, bats? You know, um, you know that sort of that's the climate or the the number of total number of games you won, uh, the average uh, number of games versus the number of losses. That's climate as opposed to individual games or practices would be the the weather. And there's, there's other analogies out there, but that's, that's one I, I like to use a lot because it's easy to understand. Right. And when it comes to connecting weather events with, with climate, I think that's where uh, a lot of folks get confused, including myself, is, is mm-hmm. you, 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 you see a particular weather event and you, you think, wow, that was, that's, that's kind of strange. Like, I don't remember it mm-hmm. raining like that before, or I don't remember yeah. a, a dry summer like that before. Um, but one or even two weather events, that doesn't tell us anything really about climate, does it? Yeah, well, well weather, we, we tend to focus on the here and now, which that's the weather. And we, we tend to, 
we tend to bias ourselves. Well, I remember this. I remember this. And, and I mean, I don't know about you, but my memory doesn't go that far. Sometimes I kind of forget. And there may be a, something that really impressed me just a few years ago. Um, and that sort of kind of biases my opinion. But we, but we have to put those, those individual events, like weather events, into context of what, what has actually happened in the last 50 years, what has happened in the last 100 years. And it's, oh, okay, well, yeah, that was a real extreme one, but the average is very different from that one. And just like, for instance, we had, if you all remember, um, the February 2011, most of the state was in this really deep freeze. And we've, we've seen those freezes before, um, you know, but that came upon right during a really warm period of time, which was kind of really weird. It was, you know, the average was, was, was warm that month, that whole year was warm. But we had that real extreme event. You know, we had 20 below zero. We even had well, I, my office is in Las Cruces, and we had five below zero on that that morning of um, February 3rd. Um, but that was an extreme event. So we, we we need to look at the context that we have in terms of um, what are we seeing compared to what do we usually see. And that's the real important part of weather versus climate is is, is seeing that. Um, in, in context with, uh, and then where, how does it look like over uh, all of New Mexico? How does it look like all over the U.S.? And then how does it look like over the whole world? Not just the land, but the oceans and the atmosphere. So um, that's kind of what I do is put things into context, gather the data. Um, what does the data tell me? And what, what kind of conclusions can I make on the data on trends and um, looking at um, how often do, do do these extreme events occur, which we, we really tend to remember, you know, flooding and um, things like that. Right. I remember the, um, I think it was in September 2013, we had uh, like two weeks of intense rain, which was very strange here in Taos. Mm-hmm. And it particularly marked in my mind because we were near flooding in in my house. And, um, uh, and, and that, that event particularly stands out. Yeah, yeah, those uh, precipitation events, and those are the kind of things we track. Are they occurring more frequently, less frequently, and do we match what other parts of the country look like? That's kind of that's kind of what we're we're tracking as climatologists. Is and so and then why and then if we if we do see a trend, why is it happening? What is driving that? And and, and then and then ultimately the, mo- the important questions are you know what what do we do about it? How can we become more resilient to those? How do we adapt to those um, with our structures or infrastructure in our lives, and knowing that maybe we have a greater chance of those in the future? If they, if they, ha- if that's the case, we need to be ready and not be caught by surprise. And so, to step back, gathering this data and putting it all together, this is a, a key fundamental question, I think, when it comes to talking about climate changes: is how do we know? How how do, how do we know this? What you're what you're telling me? I'd like to you know we have we have a, a a good chunk of time here, so I'd kind of like to dive into how do we gather the data? How do the models work? And how do we know what we know? Well, we we start off with we got to have some observations. So we we pick off we look at uh, as climatologists we we have databases that look at. Um, we'll just start with temperature. We've been taking temperature across the country. We're starting around the late 18, 1890s or middle 1890s for most of the place. So we have a pretty good, we can, we can, we can draw from that, from that network all across the country. And um, we, we can pick uh, a, a bunch of them that we know that are pretty good, that they have good quality. And, um, and then we need to understand, so we have all this data, 124 plus or minus a few years. 
Um, so how do we interpret those? So we, we find trends, and we, we try to do our best to look at not only annual things, annual trends, but look at the decadal, you know, over a period of a decade. Do what Can, can we explain those? So we look at things like um, El Nino and La Nina. Um, we look at larger larger impacts. There's there's oceanic oscillations that you know, basically the temperature of the ocean oscillates, um, and we need to find out how that impacts our temperature. So we try to do our best to find all the natural cycles out there and do our darndest to to kind of okay. So this is why this was here. This here's the dust ball. Here's the the drought of the 50s. Here's some really warm years, and here's a here's some other trends. Um, what make a list of things that we don't understand, and and find out all the things that we do understand, and then and, and go one at a time on the things that we don't understand, and do our best to to come up with um, some hypotheses. So then we go through the peer-reviewed literature. People write papers on those. They um, go through the rigors of of journal um, publications. And we address them one over time, and we've been doing that for. I, I mean, you can go back in some of the journals back to the 1920s, and and, uh, and more recently than maybe 50s and 60s, 70s, or a lot of work being done in looking at climate. Um, when we were looking at the Cold War, for instance, what happens if we have bombs? And what would happen to the atmosphere? So a lot of work has been done in response to those. <clears throat> so they and- say, what would would the atmosphere look like? And were so- people curious or noticing? or theorizing about the impacts of CO2 and methane in the atmosphere as far back as the 1920s. You referenced, you referenced mm-hmm. that. Were, were, were we looking at, at this 100 years ago? Yeah. Yeah, actually even more older than that. There are, we've, we've been continuously digging out through the, um, through the years. Um, we've been knowing about this thing called the greenhouse effect, which that's what keeps us nice and warm in the Earth compared to the other planets in the solar system. And if we can go all the way back to, you know, the 1800s, where we, they were postulating about um, what this mysterious gas is that is transparent, but apparently it absorbs heat. And then after a while, they, they, they figured out what, um, what the gas was, and then now we know what is, is CO2 and other gases, methane. And then we've put together, a, and then we had a lot of smart minds think about this, and it's, it's all published that it's, you know, what if we continuously um, increase that gas, what would be the consequences? And somebody's already thought about this a long time ago. And, and we're, so we're basing our, our, um, our science on these things, and everything has been proven. We've gotten a lot of studies done, modeling studies and observation studies, and even, even outside of the climate community in the astronomical community. So how do other planetary atmospheres work? So the astronomers are also using this, this information, not only climatologists. We're not the only ones who, um, who enjoy looking at greenhouse effect in other places. So it, it's a well-settled science, this greenhouse effect. And it's, it's a matter of what knobs, you know, think of it as a system, you know, like a TV. We push buttons. And um, so what, how does it work? And, and then which things do we do to, to change that? So, you know, we, we can increase the concentrations. Uh, there's other things out there that, that change the greenhouse effect that um, we have we we can we can do as humans to um, to change that. So, Dave, how do how do these models yeah. work? When we talk about modeling the climate in New Mexico over the next 25, 50, or 100 years, you you talked about gathering the data and sussing out mm-hmm. what is high quality data and what isn't. But then, how do the actual models work? Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a great question. So when we think of models, we have to think of, so how do we emulate what's out there in the real world? So we, if you just look around outside, so you think of that you've got the atmosphere, and then below that you've got the the, the Earth. So, and if, if you're in the coast, you've got the oceans. And if you're in the higher up in the latitudes, you've got the polar caps. So you have to think of all those things that are in the Earth. Um, so then we, we, what we do is we apply our basic principles of chemistry, of physics, and we come up with the uh, governing equations. And that's just an, a word that describes. So how do we use the, the basic, basic principles of chemistry and physics to basically model, to um, come up with a simulation that emulates the, the processes of heating, cooling, energy transfer, momentum. You know, if you push something, it has a momentum, things like that. And then um, the things like thermodynamics. If you heat something, it stores, it transfers energy from, from one place to another. There's chemical reactions um, that go on. So putting all those into equations, we commonly think of as apps on our phone, is or think of the bunch of apps out there or models um, that are on a computer that um, they work together. So one one app works with the other app. It feeds things like sea surface temperature, the air temperature, aerosols, which are tiny little particles in the atmosphere. Those also are part of the um, what we need to have in our system. Um, just basic energy balance. So how much solar radiation is incident on the Earth? And then what are the temperatures and what are the um, physical makeup? So how much of the earth is water, land, ice? What's the percent clouds over the earth and how does it change? So it's a, it's a uh, many-dimensional, meaning that there, there's three dimensions, but then you've got uh, time and then, you, and then you've got how things vary across the land. So it's a geographical system as well as a temporal temporal system that depends on time and then um, what we do is is put these together on on massive computer systems that need to have lots of memory to put in and say all the land use land cover and does it change are we doing you know we over time we you know cities build up um, we clear cut forests um, so the it used to be forest now it's uh, agricultural land um, and then we keep track of um, the the um, the ice on the polar caps, uh, Antarctica and Arctic. Those change year to year, and they also change by season. So all those so all those require data, not only um, like temperature, basic uh, thermodynamic things like temperature and winds, momentum, um, but also how do things vary on the ground? And a lot of it is uh, human based. So we know how big cities grow. Uh, how where, what the landscapes are, uh, we put all those into models, and then we um, test the models. They go through rigorous testing, and it's not done just in U.S., but all across the world. There are modeling centers in Europe, Asia, pretty much in all the Western uh, world, as well as other other places um, with universities who um, are doing modeling work. And and they, they test it to make sure it works with the past. So they put in what they think are, are the, the inputs for the past, you know, going back 50 to 100 years, test it, and then go forward saying, okay, now we, we know how it works using past data. Can we, can we go forward in time 
using, not, we don't call it forecasts, but we call them scenarios because we don't know exactly what things are going to look like in the future. Um, but we say, okay, this is a scenario we want to test. Here's the economic growth. Here's what the, that economic growth will yield in terms of CO2 or greenhouse gases, which it's not only CO2, but you know, methane, nitrous oxide, CFCs, um, aerosols. Um, so, and then they say, okay, that, let's look at that scenario. And so what happens if we run that scenario for the next uh, 50, 60, 70 years and even further? They get their results, and then they compare with other modeling uh, groups across the world. And then they, they kind of uh, work together and say, oh, you, you guys have that kind of result. So there's a lot of collaboration in the modeling groups, and everybody wants to have the best model, of course, right? So they try to do their best to, to produce the best uh, modeling output compare, comparing to the uh, actual observations. And it's not just one thermometer, but they, they do it across all the thermometers in the world. They look at satellite observations. They look at buoys. Um, that measure um, sea height and sea surface temperatures, um, as well as uh, testing it um, for things like the vegetation cover, and as well as um, recently was um, looking at uh, greenhouse gas concentrations. We have a, a, a nice long record of uh, greenhouse gas concentrations across the world now, um, knowing that's that's really important to do, so we can compare um, what 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 the future. Uh, we use that to predict the future in, in a way that, with, with these models. So if we have, I think you said at the start, we have about 140, 150 years of, of um, data, weather data to work with here in mm-hmm. New Mexico. And maybe on the East Coast, there's 200 years or in Europe, there's maybe 300 years. In the grand scheme of things, that's a pretty small amount of data. So how, how do we know that what's happening now with our climate is unique in over the course of thousands or even tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years if we only have 150 years of data? Yeah. So we have, you know, like you said, about 120 to 140, 50 years in some places. Those are those are thermometers. So if we want to go back in time, we'll have to go, we'll have to look, look a little deeper into, so how do, how does temperature change other things? So for instance, one of the things we look at is tree rings. So it's like, wow, what's trees got to do with temperature and precipitation? Um, so, well, well, we think about how trees grow. Um, if you ever looked at a, if you saw the tree, you look at the tree rings, and you can actually um, understand the precipitation as that tree grew. So there's there's people who are called dendrochronologists, and we have several in New Mexico that we were very very happy to have live here that that know how to interpret these trees and do really good job in creating a um, going back in you know hundreds of years and even thousands of years, um, and they've reconstructed the climate that we use to put in context our small our little hundred or so year. Um, period of record and then go back and say, okay, how frequent do we get these really dry periods? Or how frequent do we get these really wet periods? And like, for instance, this, the wet period that we just got out of that, you know, right around 1999 and going back to the last, um, in, in the eighties, that was an extraordinarily wet period. Uh, it wasn't the wettest period, but it was a very wet period compared to other years. And so we can actually come come across and say, hey, we really know something about what goes on, and it actually changes in some parts of New Mexico are different than other parts of New Mexico. And then we then we ask the question, why? Um, and then we, if you want to go even further back, we have to look at other areas, not just trees, but things. If we have to go back to look at uh, how does um, the the land deposit in the ground, 
So you can look at lake deposits, and, and across the world, you can go and look at polar regions, in, say, like in Greenland. You can go and, and, and do cores of the ice and look at the layerings. Um, and then there are folks who are really good at that, interpreting the layers in the, the, um, glaci- the glaciers and, in, and try to come up with what they call a proxy record, meaning that it's something that's based off of another thing. So we look at layers so how frequently do the layers deposit? So if we know how, to, how the, the mechanism of the layers work, how, how long does it take to put layers together, then we can come up with a model to, to understand, okay, we've got X number of layers, you know, hundreds or thousands of layers out here, or even hundreds of thousands of layers. So how does that work? And then how do we come up with a, a record of, of temperature or precipitation? And the nice thing about glaciers is when the, when they freeze, they actually freeze little air bubbles in them. And the air bubbles are trapped air that was trapped when that layer froze. So just like when you freeze a, um, some ice cubes in your freezer, um, when I freeze them, there's little bubbles in it. And so if I was to keep that freezer um, for hundreds of years, I could go back and thaw that little ice cube and get the concentrations of gas in my freezer. Um, they don't do that for freezers, but they can do that for glaciers. And they carefully do that over time to come up with the, the concentrations of gases. Um, and they can even do things like isotopic analysis, looking at isotopes and looking at um, even the chemical analysis of those layers to tell how much, uh, what kind of wildfires were there. Are there any volcanic um, eruptions that were in those layers? So it's, it's amazing what they're coming up with. And it's a very quickly, the science is, is increasing at a very, very, very fast rate. And there's even conferences. I just saw an invitation to a conference um, uh, and they were put basically the, the whole conference is, is getting folks together like-minded who would do that layering, that, that do that proxy work and, and try to understand how did the like medieval warm period and some of those older, um, even even further back, how did they work, the glacial times, the interglacials? So what kind of records can we put together? And there's lots of different, even in the oceans. I have a colleague who does work in the um Gulf of Mexico and, and looks at the, the corals and uh, there's actually submerged trees off the coast of, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. And she's a, she's a scuba diver. She goes down and takes samples of those trees that are submerged in, I don't know, 50 to 60 feet of water. And I, I was just fascinated by that. And it's like, wow, what can we learn with those, by, by those, those, um, you know, taking uh, those cores of the trees and, and understanding the the shells and the fish that that are deposited in those areas, and then come up with a a, a, um, a reconstruction of our temperatures, and that's how we we put all those things together, and we come up with an understanding of of the climate based off of those small samples. You know, like like my friend and um, taking measurements in the Gulf. That's one area. And then we put the, we put it in the context with the layers in in Greenland, and we put it together with the tree rings. And we come up with a, a composite of, so this, this area was cooler, whereas this area was warmer at the same time. And then we do this across the globe and come up with a, a, a better understanding of the global temperature and, and precipitation. And that's just one way that we can go back thousands of years or more to understand what the climate was. And when you hear the the the, the uh, off-peated refrain of um, the climate has always been changing, you look back through this data and you see that in fact that's true. The climate has always been changing. How 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 do we know that this what's happening now is different? Yeah. So the answer to that, the, and I was I always agree. Yeah, you're exactly right. The climate has always changing, 
But we, then we asked the question, so what was the cause of those climate changes? And we can go back, and when I teach my class, we go back looking at natural cycles. We go looking at the orbital cycles. So how has the Earth's orbit changed over time? And there have been some people who put together models of how the amount of energy received in Earth is varied by the orbital cycles. There's three different periods um, with tilt, eccentricity, precession. Um, we look at other things, the oceanic we look at oscillations from, from there, and we, then we come up with, a, you know, interpret the, the actual data. That's kind of how we put together the answer. The, the climate is always changing, but we, we need to know what are the causes. And the, the recent increase in temperature over, you know, actually looking at it over the last 100 years, even in context putting the last, say, 1970s through the present, and, um, that is a really fast-changing um, temperature that hasn't happened very often. And we, we don't have a lot of really high-resolution data. And, and we have no way of explaining that naturally. There's no um, way to really explain this really fast-changing temperature while the natural cycles are, are still moving, but they're slow. So and there's even some hundred years, some, but they're, they're too slow to, to explain this really fast in, in combination with the changes of the greenhouse gases, they're changing extremely fast as well. So you've looked at things like solar flares and uh, different oscillations in the atmosphere to see what might be a different explanation for the current warming. Uh, and, and you've been able to, to, to knock those to the side, basically, and say, yeah, this, this doesn't account for it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I treat myself... I, I I look at things kind of skeptically. I, I you know I it ha I have to prove it. If I read a paper, it's like okay, you need to prove that to me. You know, if I read the abstract, okay, so where in the paper does it actually prove that conclusion? So I've been you know I I keep I try and keep myself up to you know up to speed on all the different things out there with uh, climate change and and so I I need to see the proof myself. And time after time, I it does jive. Um, there are things that um, are are less convincing and some. Uh, extremely convincing things like volcanic the the role of volcanism we have volcanoes and you know submarine volcanoes leaking carbon dioxide and methane i i'd like to look at things and so it really needs to do to show itself um and you know I, I look at different cycles there's 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 things that look at the pacific versus the atlantic some of them are but a lot of them are fairly they're very slow moving and i haven't been able to find anything that can describe the current warming. If I come up with something, um, that's probably worthy of a um, Nobel Prize. Um, so if anybody has something, let me know and we'll work on it. <laughs> that, that can explain the, the last changes in combination with the rapidly changing greenhouse gases and other things. Um, that, that would be a challenge. And I think there are people actually trying to do that, and they have been unsuccessful in terms of coming up with alternative um, hypotheses for the current warming. And I, I think um, if you lay it out um, uh, very objectively in a peer-reviewed journal, I think it would, um, I think you could get it published even, I think. But if you have to lay it out as, as you know, from the science, from basic physics to, to, to look at, does it explain it in, in combination with all the other things that we know about the greenhouse gas? Um, so the greenhouse if any gas... Uh, greenhouse effect is something we we really have to um, it has to it has to work in conjunction with that. Dave, in the last fifteen minutes that we have, um, we've talked about the science behind 
uh, how we know. Let's talk about New Mexico specifically. We, I asked it first why New Mexico should be worried about climate change. You mentioned that it's actually happening right in front of us. It's already influencing uh, our state. Um, give me some examples of how. Um, we're seeing um, the last decade, and in terms of the, the average temperature, uh, they've been the warmest on record. You know, even if you take out the, the effects of the urban heat islands where a lot of our thermometers are, it's still the warmest on record um, looking back. And then if you even compare those with some of the rural places that don't have a big urban heat island, we're seeing it in the, uh, the current trends in the, the snowpack are also indicative um, of what we would expect of climate change. Um, and we've been working with a lot of the water managers, and, and they also agree with that. Um, we also um, work with some of the land manager and some of the modeling um, groups that we, we have on campus here, uh, NRCS, the USDA, Agricultural Resource Service, the uh, Hornada, we collaborate with in projects. And, and we've been talking a lot about, you know, how does it affect ecological well-being of New Mexico? And and one of the things we're they've been looking at is the, 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 the current warming and the drying um, are basically reducing the um, what they call the overall net primary production. So which changes, it's basically species changing, like reducing vegetation. And, um, and they're looking at mainly at affecting um, um, moving to more woody species as opposed to grass. Um, and that's kind of fits with what they've been looking at over a lot of areas and uh, and we're seeing so what is what does um, that mean exactly are, are you saying that the makeup of the vegetation in areas is 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 changing it, it, unpack that for me a little bit yeah so it's basically changing there's they call these um transitions so it's that and it's, it's talked a lot in the ecological communities of the, the grass to shrub transition and um and it's and it's we're just we're seeing that in, in, in some areas are, you know, we, we, we kind of start this human cause and then, and things just continue to, to move in that direction. I, I'm not an expert on the ecological part, but I'm just seeing that as a indicator of how things are getting started now and how things will, will progress if their hypotheses are, are correct. You know, basically it's, I kind of understand it as, uh, you know, what the, the higher temperatures are droughts. Are, are much warmer now than they have been. Like the 50s droughts were maybe a little more intense, but our current droughts, even though we have, we have a little more uh, precipitation than those, they're much warmer than they, than they used to be. So that has, has also changed the, the water availability of, for vegetation, and so it changes the, what species will dominate. That may be something you could do in follow-up would be to, so how does that actually work in the in the plant systems because I'm not you know I'm a physical scientist I'm not a, a plant scientist but see that happening over our large large areas of, of New Mexico because we're already seeing that that warming and there's a and what what I track is a thing called evapotranspiration and that is a combined effort of the the plants and the um, the ground evaporating um, there's more evaporation when you have higher temperatures that higher temperatures the more increasing Evapotranspiration puts a lot of stress on the the green vegetation. It really is hard. It's just like if you don't water your grass on a really hot day, it's going to get brown. And so, how much water does your grass need? And that depends on the evapotranspiration. It's not just the evaporation, but how much is lost through the plant structure itself, the, the leaves, 
the the stock and things like that. And that's kind of what I'm very concerned about is that evapotranspiration change as a result of the increasing temperature. Um, other things in New Mexico that we're, we're, we're really tracking and concerned about, at least from my office as well as a lot of the, the health community, are, are the um, things that, that human health are, um, depend on, things like allergies. So, yeah, we've got allergies, but we're seeing the, the longer growing seasons are, have been increasing slowly over time, and which, which has implications for having more longer pollen seasons. And, and that's something that doesn't sound very pleasing, um, you know, knowing right now, at least I've, I've been looking at pollen, uh, like City of Albuquerque has it, they publish it, like mulberries and, and, and uh, ash are very high right now, as well as juniper, and seeing that as an increase in, in talking with the health community um, and some people, the, um, that uh, could translate into higher asthma rates. So right. there's, there's, and that increases the, you know, the, the burden on our society for health care. I mean, that's just one example. I can tell you this morning I'm sitting up here and my eyes are itching like crazy. There's something in the air on this beautiful spring morning and uh, my yep. eyes, it's really hitting my eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's that's one thing. I mean, it, this is normal. This is the springtime when things, um, you know, pollinate. Um, but, it's you know, they may, they're increasing earlier in the year, which has another effect of um, air quality is another um, indicator that we're very concerned with, with wildfires. You know, our wildfire season, uh, we're used to seeing most of the fires in the, in, in the summertime. That's kind of when they're, you know, when, th- when things are drying out and you get lightning as well as human caused and more in that time. And we're seeing that pushed earlier in the year in terms of the larger fires, which has an impact on our, our human health. So with the, the air quality, frequency and, uh, yeah, the air quality, frequency and size of wildfires are, it could increase. Um, and like we've seen big fires, we could, even though it occurs somewhere else, it gets transported to here. Like we've gotten fires from the Pacific Northwest. The smoke from there has come to New Mexico, as well as the fires from uh, like the uh, fires in California. That actually, some of that smoke came here, and, and it was it's part of the burden that we're we're breathing that. And the, as we know. The health community has been educating us on the impacts of air quality, specifically the small, really small particles impacting children, the um, pregnant women, as well as elderly and, and everybody. You know, when we get very high particulates and ozone, that negatively um, impacts our, our, our health. And, and we're seeing that extremes, on, like in China, you know, right. uh, in, in Asia now, when we see, we're seeing lots of, a lot of people dying early because of the air pollution. And it's sort of that, you know, if you take it further all the way, that's what happens. You know, we don't want it to get that bad, of course. And it doesn't get that bad here. But when we see those spikes in those um, times when we get a lot of wildfires, yeah, there are people who go to the hospital more often. And there's been a lot of publications on that to, to track that. And here in New Mexico, just concurrent with, with the, the there's, there's the issue of air quality around forest fires, but also there's this issue of dust. I mean, we live in New Mexico. We're used to dust. Everybody, we've got to dust our houses every every week because you know it piles up. It's it's part of living in New Mexico. But there's a right. human health impact to dust. And uh, you know, you mentioned, you said earlier, both in our previous phone call and and today that you know we're we're looking at hotter and drier for New Mexico and a change in vegetation. And for me, it's like, well, we're going to get a lot more dust in the air too, right? Right, right. Yeah, that's one of the things that we're tracking is that, you know, we're seeing that, that with that vegetation change, 
We're seeing the, the drying out of our soils as well. Um, we may see the, the same amount of precipitation annually, but we're, the, one of the things with climate change is they may be spread out more, meaning that there may be a longer time between um, rain events, which, you know, of course, that you know makes sense. You know, you get very dry soils, you get wind, um, and we get our windy season is in springtime, which coincides with our pollen season to make our make our lives miserable. Um, those are protect, projected to increase as well as the the summertime. You know, we get these things called haboobs, basically, or the wall of dust. I've seen them in Albuquerque. They they're fairly frequent here in southern New Mexico, um, and you know they're famous in like. Tucson and Phoenix, I think there's a, a good chance of seeing a, a higher uh, rate, you know, increase of those. Thinking about the dust, um, most of the dust particles, it's their, their soil, but a large part of it is actually biologicals. There's actually, the, the soil is actually a lot of organics in there, things like fungi and bacteria. Most of them are, um, our body has no problem with, you know, we breathe it all the time, we're used to it. However, if you move in from a different area, you're not used to those those biologicals. You can get um, have problems with your lung, and one of them, one of the, the the ailments is called valley fever, and it's very common. It's more more common in, in the San Joaquin Valley in southern Arizona, but here in New Mexico, it's also an endemic area for that that fungi, and it's a fungus. And, and it when you break the crust and you get wind erosion, you can breathe that stuff in. It takes over in your lungs and reproduces, just like a, 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 a fungus. It creates spores, and it will live in your lung. Um, a, a small sector of our population actually get this, um, and those who get it, some of them, the, the impacts vary. Some of them are very debilitating, and some of them are, they give you they have a cough, and you feel like you have the flu or even some some other ailment. So that's one of the things that we're, we're tracking because that, that valley fever is actually uh, under underreported because it, it ha- it looks like something else when you go to the doctor's office. So it doesn't get it doesn't doesn't get tracked in in the um, the, the databases as often as other um, diseases. So that's one of the things. And we, we just had a conference yesterday to talk about that. So how do we increase the you know put it on the radar of doctors and um, patients who think they may have it so that they can get treated? There is no cure for it, but there are ways to keep it um, at, at a certain level. So that's one of the things that we're we're very concerned with. And I've actually gotten calls from people in, in uh, central New Mexico who have valley fever. So it's creeping north in terms of the number of people who I know who have it. I've, I've talked to some people in Texas as well as in Mexico who have it. So it's something that it doesn't occur a lot in terms of the number of people who, who have it. In, in, you know, but I think it's something it, it may it likely increase. And and you were you were saying it's it this is creeping north. What other kind of impacts are we going to feel up here in northern New Mexico and uh, southern Colorado when it comes to this this increase of dust that we're looking at? Well, when you get dust, um, and we like in the Four Corners, even um, in in the Arizona side in northeast Arizona, it, the dust goes somewhere. And like our dust that we had here actually went all the way up to Minnesota. This was on the April 10th when you guys had lots. You actually had lots of dust even in northern New Mexico. Right. Um, but, right. And that's a lot of it. They had brown dust in Minnesota. In, here in um, the southwest, our dust, some of the dust actually goes into the mountains. So the San Juan Mountains and the San Gabriel de Cristo Mountains. In the San Juan Mountains, it's very important because that's our, our water supply. Basically, you get dust to deposit on the snow. It, it, the dust makes the, the snow brown. Brown snow absorbs sunlight. Basically, the darker the something, it, the more it absorbs sunlight. It heats, 
which means it's going to melt, slowly melt faster than if it was if, if it was white. So it's going to change the timing of the snow melt, which changes the runoff of our systems, which change the, the hydrologic cycle in terms of the timing. Timing is really important for runoff right around this time of year. And we, 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 we like we, our systems are built for um, our um, reservoirs, store, you know, all the way up Platoro for at least the Rio Grande, Heron, Elvado, and then goes all the way down to Texas, eventually Mexico. Um, we, we have that as managed, but if we have other things, stressors like dust, which is not only a natural, but as well as it's human cause. You know, what do we have on the ground? What kind of animals do we have that, that break the crust? And, um, and then we have natural things like, like storms that create the, the, the wind erosion. So we, the sort of, it's, we call it a feedback system where we change the landscape and the natural cycles, um, take that and, and actually make the, the climate worse. So we're, we're actually, it's a, it's a, it's a, Aridification process by doing that, and we've seen it in other continents happen that that kind of cycle, and we we need to be able to be to be control that so that we don't, um, you know, make it even worse than it's going to be um, right. by by land use changes, and so that, that that is very concerning to me. Dave, so you know we've been in this drought for almost twenty years. I two two questions come that I've been thinking about is. You know, we had this fantastic winter. It's, at least it seemed fantastic. The, the mountains are covered in snow this year. We had a, we had a lot of snow in town, here in Taos. Um, it seems like the state made out really well this winter. I, I'd like to understand w- how this winter fits into the historical context um, when, you, when you compare with this drought. Like, are we, is, it, it, does this winter save us? What, what happens next? Well, we're very blessed to have El Nino's um, in the middle of these La Ninas. And those are our main weather drivers, um, and they last on, on the order of year, um, months to to year, um, sometimes even longer. And we've had some really dry, and that was from that kind of system. And then recently we're in this El Nino, and El Ninos tend to be cooler and, and wetter for New Mexico. And we're really blessed to have an, an El Nino that was sort of slow to get started, and then it looks like it's going to, Stay with us for a little while, at least in terms of the ocean, because it's very interesting how the ocean impacts us, which is good. So um, we're likely going to continue with this above-average snowpack and precipitation for a little while, uh, which is great um, because we're so behind in, um, uh, especially up north in the mountains and the Four Corners, that really need um, this kind of precipitation to get us out of the intense drought that we have, we're still in a drought in terms of the hydrologic. Um, we've, we had pretty much empty reservoirs uh, down here. Um, we're, I think it was like 13% of capacity, the Elephant Butte. And that's how we, where we store water for, for, the, for irrigation down here. Um, so we've got a lot of water to make up. Um, but, we're, but this year is great, uh, but we need more of that. It's not just one, one year is not enough. Dave, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM in Taos, New Mexico. Edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.taoslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.